so glad you have decided to join us today. If you want to start making your way over to Romans chapter 8, that's where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 8 is in the back third of your Bible, so you can start turning there. We are exactly halfway through our series on Romans. We are taking an entire year to walk chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. We're exactly half week, uh, halfway. If you can believe it, next week we will turn our attention to Christmas. Ah, super excited. Hey, how many of y'all have your tree up? Come on, eager beavers, raise your hands. There you go. You're my people. Mine is going up tomorrow. It'll be super fun. Uh, but we'll take our attention towards Christmas starting next week, and then we'll walk through Christmas, do a short series in January, and then we'll jump back into Romans, uh, the back half of this year. So that's where we're going to be. Um, so we're parking, uh, we've parked in Romans chapter 8 for the last four, or we'll be in there a total of four weeks, because we believe that Romans chapter 8 is probably some of the most significant book and chapter in all of the scripture. It's got some of the most powerful life transformational verses found really in all the Bible. We love us some verses found in Romans 8, particularly verses Romans 8, 28. Does anybody know it? And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Absolutely. It's one of the most famous verses kind of in all of the scripture. You might have it bedazzled on a t-shirt or you might have it on a coffee cup or it might be on a sign in your house some way. And it's beautiful. But the problem often is, is that we take certain scriptures and we pluck them out of their context. And so they, lo- they lose a little bit of the teeth or they lose a little bit of the bite and the heaviness that they're intended to. And so as we kind of journey towards Romans 8.28 this morning, we're going to set the context in the bigger story of what Paul is trying to tell us. And so to understand 8.28, you got to look at Romans 8.1. And that's where we were a couple of weeks ago. And it said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. When the enemy whispers in your ear lies because that's his native tongue, the only thing that we say back is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And last week we said, because there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, God deposits his Holy Spirit inside of us that, and that there has been an identity shift in us now that our fundamental way that we see ourselves as as what Paul said, you have been given the spirit of adoption, that you and I, the fundamental way we see ourselves now is as sons and as daughters of the king of the greatest father the world has ever known. And so last week we ended in verse 17, and let's go to that. I want to show you what it, where we ended off last week. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And we were like, bring it. I love it. I love me some verse 17. It's really, really powerful. And we wish that it ended there. But the problem with that is the Bible. (laughs) The Bible doesn't end there. It goes on and it says this, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And see, that is the gospel message. The gospel is the groaning comes before the glory, the pain before the promise, a cross before the resurrection. And as we journey to Romans 8, 28, we are going to be talking this morning about pain, suffering, and hurt. So some pretty light topics on Thanksgiving week, right? 
some pretty light stuff, but we're going to be kind of turning our attention to what do we do with the reality that we are loved and we experience pain and suffering and hurt. And so I'm going to invite you to stand if uh, this morning, if you're able, we say the Shema on Sunday morning. Shema is <clears throat> not something we just made up. The Shema is a prayer found in the Older Testament as well in the Newer Testament. And so it's a way that we prepare our hearts to receive God's words. If you're visiting with us this morning, one of our fun family traditions is we say just the first two lines in Hebrew, and that's the language that Jesus would have known it in. So we think that's powerful to have his language in our mouth uh, as we prepare to receive his words. And so I'm going to invite you to, to say the Shema with us this morning. Let's say it. Shema Israel, Adonai Adoheinu. Adonai Kab, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your might, and love your neighbor as yourselves. Amen. And so, God, as we open your scripture up, God, and it reads, as we read it, may it read us as well, God. What's better than me speaking this morning, God, is that you're a God that speaks to every single one of us. God, you have our ear, you have our attention. We believe we can hear your voice. We believe that you have something good in store for us. And so we give you our attention. We give you our ear, believing that the Father will speak this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans 8. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 18 this morning. Here we go. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the future glory that is going to be revealed in us. And so Paul understands this reality that we are co-heirs with Christ, and yet at the same time we experience suffering. And it says uh, that I consider that our present suffering, so what is the present suffering that Paul is talking about? Context is really important. Paul is writing not just to, uh, to people that bad stuff just seems to be happening, happening to them, but he's writing to the persecuted Christian. Back in first century world, uh, you have to understand if you were a member of what they called the way, your life was literally on the line. Many Christians, not just Jesus, were being crucified left and right. And under Domitian and Nero, they were the, the, the crucifixions that were happening were on an everyday basis. In a couple of weeks, you're going to light some candles and you're going to host a big Christmas party around your house. And you want to kind of set the ambience by the lighting. Well, when Nero and Domitian would have parties, they would get these big pike poles and put them in the ground, and then they would stick Christians on top of them and light them on fire to create the backdrop, to create the mood of his parties. That's the type of persecution that the early Christians were facing, not just random bad things that were happening, but severe consequences if you said you were a member of the way. And it's in that context that Paul says that our present sufferings are not worth comparison to the glory that will be revealed as extremely painful as this is. The suffering that we experience, the heartbreak, the regret, the longings, as bad as that is, it doesn't compare to the future glory that we will one day receive or what we would call heaven. There's an inheritance for those that belong to Christ that makes what our experiences in this world pale in, pale in the comparison to what he has in store for us. Think of it this way. Let's pretend you're broke. I mean, you're broke, broke. You got no money. So it's probably like right after Christmas. You spent way too much on those kids and the family and... uh you get a, a letter in the mail 
And it's from a distant, distant, distant relative. It's Uncle Rufus. And Uncle Rufus has died. But Uncle Rufus, you come to find out, was not just loaded, but I'm talking loaded. We're talking multiple carfuls of garages, houses, staff, bling, more money than you could spend in a hundred lifetimes. And you get word that that inheritance now belongs to you. And so you get in your 2010 Honda CRV, and you set out on the destination to go walk into your inheritance. And you're making it up most of the hills. And then when you get to the top, you get a little more speed. And this goes on the whole way there. Well, about the last quarter mile, you see Uncle Rufus's house in the distance. And the CRV just and dies at the top of the hill. Breaks down. Check engine light goes off. You get out of the car and you say, my car, I can't believe this. What luck I've had. This is horrific. What a horrible day. My car, my car, look at my car. This is ridiculous. Look at my car, look at my car. And all of us would say, you're being ridiculous. Do you see what is right there? All of that belongs to you. Do you see your inheritance and you're complaining about your car? And Paul would say, that's the picture I want you to hold on to. There is an inheritance waiting for followers of Christ that makes the suffering that we experience in this life pale in comparison to what he has in store for us. Though the car, though our bodies, though this life might break down, it pales in comparison to the riches our heavenly father has in store for us. Let's keep going. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And so if you've ever asked the question of why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there heartbreak in the world? Romans 8 answers that question. And it's because it's been subjected. The, the evil one, cursed be he, he, has injected sin into the creation. And if you go back and you look in Rome, or excuse me, in Genesis chapter three, you'll see the consequence of an Adam of Eve and how this, the evil one, because of their choices, injected, infused sin into creation. And it has caused this fractured ripple effect that touches every part of our life. So much so that even the weather systems don't obey at times in your own skin, in your own DNA at times, don't obey. And it's not because of my sin necessarily, but because sin was injected, infused into creation, into creation and was so perverted and did so much damage that everything there out got fractured because of it. So uh, my daughter, Ryan, she is 10 now, but she got really big into Legos uh, for a season. I'm convinced that there's a special place in hell for Legos. Have you ever stepped on a Lego barefoot before? <laughs> it ain't fun. And uh, so one of her birthdays, we bought her this big Lego princess tower thing or whatever. And so me and Ryan spent literally days going through the stupid direction things, building it up. And we'd miss a step and we'd have to go back and undo it and then rebuild it up. And it was this big Disney tower thing. And it probably took us a week to put it together. And let me be honest, we were pretty proud of ourselves. It was pretty awesome. Uh, and so around our house, we, we, we're silly. We like to have a lot of fun and we do a lot of wrestling. And one day 
Maggie came along. <laughs> and Maggie, we were wrestling, and they were wrestling in the living room. And Ryan's Lego, because we were so proud of it, we had it on the countertop in the kitchen. Well, Maggie took this pillow and whipped it at me, and I kind of got out of the way, and it hit Ryan's Lego thing and shattered it into pieces. Hit the ground, shattered it into pieces again. And it was literally, I mean, it was devastating. Ryan was crying. I was crying. It was horrible. It took a long time to put together. And so me and my girl sat down at the counter and once again tried to put this thing back together. And let me be honest, we did a good job. (laughs) We put it back together, but you could tell just by looking at it that it wasn't as it was intended to be. The picture wasn't quite right. It was just a little off because of the damage that it had suffered. And I think Paul is writing to us today saying the same thing. Like, because of sin got injected into creation, it's like creation fell and it got fractured. And just by looking around in the world and you see the pain and you see the hurt, you know things are not as God intended. Things look just a little off. It's like the Lego thing. It's back together, but you can tell it's not as everything is intended to be. And Paul says it's the same thing because of the sin that we experience. Let's keep going. In verse 21, it says this, So then, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of God's children. So the context for the good, uh, the context God works all things is in the midst of severe suffering and pain and bondage that you and I are experiencing. Because I know that in this room right now, let's not pretend. There are many of us holding on by the thinnest thread. That's certainly been me in the last couple of years. If you were to push me, I just might go all the way over. And I'm sure that many of you have walked in this room experiencing hurt, pain, suffering, rejection, agonizing, and loss. And if that is not you this morning, if you're walking in here and everything is really great right now, let me say this. I'm glad for you. And I'm not like giving this as a word over you, but I just want to tell you, it's going to get a whole lot worse. (laughs) Because one day, everything you love will eventually slip through your fingers. The people that you love the most will eventually die. I'm going to go or my wife is going to go before me. It's like everything that we hold precious in this life will one day just somehow slip through our fingers, right? That's, That's the picture of it. And you need to know this. Jesus says, in this world you will face troubles of many kind. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that reality that this is a good, 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 good father and you experience pain and hurt and suffering? He's so kind and he's so loving, but we live oftentimes with a broken heart. How are you you supposed to make sense of that? Listen to what this one pastor says as he writes about this. His words are profound and I think help focus in a little bit about where we're headed this morning. Listen to this. Not only is all your afflictions momentarily, not only are all your afflictions light in comparison to the eternity and glory there, but it's all totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain, 
from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is doing something. It's producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of that. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. It was not meaningless. It is doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you get cancer at 40, when a car jumps the curb and takes them out, don't say that is meaningless. It's not. It's working for you the weight of an eternal glory. Therefore, don't lose heart, but take these truths and day by day by day, focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. And he's talking about Romans chapter eight right here. Preach them to yourself every single moment. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and that you are cared for. And I would add that God is good and oftentimes we just don't understand. What Romans 8 begs you to consider is that we have an inheritance that far outweighs the things that we experience in this world. And the reason why Romans 8 digs so deep and begs you to consider pain, suffering, and hurt is because we have a skyscraper of hope that gets built right on top of that. And we have to have a foundation that goes deep for the amount of inheritance that we can expect because of the pain and suffering that we get to experience. And I want to show you how Romans 8 now makes this turn and builds on this hope that we have as followers of Christ. Let's look at verse 22. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And all the mamas in the house said, amen, right up until this very moment. And Paul says, as in childbirth, childbirth produces, it has this great pain, but the pain produces life. It's doing something. The pain is not meaningless. The pain was worth it. And every mama in here knows that the pain is worth it, else you'd only have one kid. You'd only do it one time. But for you that know that the pain is worth it, and so there's multiple kids in this community. When me and Christy, well, I don't want to say it that way. When me and Christy were pregnant, when Christy was pregnant, um, we went to the doctor. We went to go see uh, the jelly lady. You know who the jelly lady is? She's the one that like puts the jelly on the belly and they bring out the wand and they look for that baby. And so it was really fun at this period. Never done that before. Christy was like, listen, we don't even need to go. I've heard from the Lord we're having a boy. This is just confirmation that we are, I mean, it's just confirmation. So I'm like, Good, I got my boy. So we go in there, they slap the jelly on, and I'm like, what is that? What is that over there? Oh my, look at that. That's got my boy, woo, there he is. Um, sir, that's an elbow. Oh, man, I was like, oh man, that was pretty good. So, and it's a girl. 
And there's just something about a daddy and his little girl where you know that you would literally just die for them and you would make somebody die for them. You know, it's, it's this part of your heart where, where you didn't even know that needed to be resurrected comes alive. And there's a part of you that just didn't even know was missing. And you have this question that no one really talks about because it's not, it's inappropriate, but thinks, can I ever love another? Can I ever love my second kid this way? I mean, if we have another kid, is this even possible to love the next as much as this one? And so uh, when we, uh, when she found out she was pregnant, um, this time we went to the jelly lady girl and I know what, I love girls. I love being a dad to two girls. And this time around, I wised up. They put the sheet over Christy um, this time, and I stayed north of 1604. <laughs> Let me be honest, because if you go south of 1604, it's crazy, it's angry, it's really busy down there. So I stayed n- north of 1604, and um, they pull out Maggie, and they place her in my arms, and I'm like, oh, it's this picture where love is an inexhaustible resource. And it's just, and there's more, 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 and there's more love just gets poured out. So what would happen if in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your anguish, that you believe that God loved you that much? How would that change the way that you experience suffering and pain to believe that there's an inexhaustible love that just gets poured out for God's kids? And if you were to ask Maggie or Ryan, like two seconds after they came out, if they could interview, what did you think? They would say, well, that was pretty rough. And I would say, yeah, baby girl, daddy got you right here and he grabbed you up. And that pain and that uncomfort And that wild ride that you experience is producing something inside of you. It's producing this peculiar glory inside of you that though you can't see it today, one day you will begin to experience the fullness of that. What if you believe that God felt that way about you? When we go through the pains and sufferings of this world, we can't understand But Romans 8 is saying it's not meaningless. God is up to something in us. Verse 23 says this, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our body. So what is he talking about with the first fruit right there? So if you are a follower of a Christ, you have the Holy Spirit deposited inside of you. And it talks about this idea of first fruits. First fruits is real simple. So if you are, if you have a crop, the first set of um, produce or first set of grains that come in, that is the first fruit. It's not the fullness of it. It's just the first fruit. It's a sign. It's an indication of the things to come. And Paul in here says this, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit has been deposited in us, we get to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's only the first fruits of it. It's like there is another harvest that will be coming, 
but that you and I only get to experience the first fruits of it. It says that we groan inwardly waiting for our adoption. And I know that some of you pay attention and you're like, wait, but didn't last week we talk about that we're already adopted? And now he's changing it and saying, we're waiting for our adoption. What is that about? What's this? How is this connected to first fruits right here? I've been adopted, but now I'm waiting for my adoption. Well, trying to explain God in any type of like chronological order gets really difficult and it gets really messy. So you're going to find a whole lot of things in the scripture that have this idea or this theological understanding called this. <clears throat> Next slide. It's called the already and not yet. The all ready and not yet, that yes, you have already been adopted as sons and as daughters of Christ, and not yet do we get to experience the fullness of that. So last two weeks ago, I was at a court for a friend of ours, and I was sitting next to an old Young Life girl, and she was 26 now. I did their wedding for them a couple years back, and they are adopting a little girl from China, and um, she was telling me, we know her name. We've gone and seen her. She's ours on paper. Legally, that girl belongs to us. But the adoption process takes a really long time. There's a lot of boxes you got to go through and checks you got to kind of figure out. So although on paper, that daughter belongs to them, it's like another six months or a year or so of a waiting period. And Paul would say, that's, that's, that's the same idea. You have been adopted, but yet you don't get to experience the fullness of your adoption today, that there's an inheritance, there's a first fruits that we experience, but there will come a day when we get to experience all of it. But why? Why can't we experience all of that today? Um, there's a story in the Older Testament where Moses goes to God and he tells God, I want to see your glory. And God's like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. And so Moses turns his face and hides his uh, face in the cleft of a rock and God passes by Moses and Moses gets to see the remnant of God's glory because this earthly body cannot handle the full glory of God on display. And Paul would say, that's kind of the picture that we talk about. It says that we are, go back to the scripture. It goes back and it says, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. There will come a day where this body will go and I will get a new glory glorified body, if we are co-heirs with Christ, if we are going to rule and reign with him one day, then all that he has in store for us will one day belong to us. And our bodies are not built to enjoy that fullness now. So God has to redeem our bodies. It would be like taking a beautiful Rembrandt um, painting and taking it to my daughter Maggie's second grade art class. They're going to be like, what, I mean, great. They, they don't care. It's because they don't even have the ability to the, enjoy the beauty that is going to be in store for them. It says we have to wait for the redemption of our bodies. And the 40 and up crowd is like, amen. <laughs> Thank God. You're going to see some nasty old funky hips out there on the, on the football field today. <laughs> you know, it's going to not be pretty. I'm sure a couple of hammies are going to go down today because our bodies are just decaying. They're not built to last forever. I'm going to, you know what I do on every Sunday after church? I go home and I take a two hour nap and I'm like, woo, I'm exhausted. And she's like, what are you exhausted from? I don't know, talk. You know, <laughs> these bodies are not built. <laughs> they, they just don't, won't sustain. And so it's like 
God has not even given us the taste buds for the banquet that he's prepared for us one day. We don't even have the taste buds to enjoy the fullness of what God has in store for us. We only have, as the scripture says this morning, we only have the first fruits of that. We get a taste of it. Let's keep going and finish it. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved, but this hope that is seen is no hope at all because who hopes in what they already have for? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. If you're suffering and if you're in pain, and if the deeper the pain, the greater the glory that will one day be revealed. Verse 26, in the same way, the spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. That means that at any given moment, the Holy Spirit is steadying you. It's laying a foundation. It's holding you. It's embracing you. It's comforting you. And when you are in pain, the Spirit goes to work. Keep going. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people, catch this part, according with the will of God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that place where the pain is so great that you don't even know what to say? It's like you don't even have words that can come out of your mouth to even know how to take the first step. You don't even know. Paul says when that happens, there's two things that you need to know, that at any given moment on two planes, there are two people always praying for you. Hebrews, in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is now like this with your name in his mouth. Come on, keep going. I got you. Come on, you can do it. And he's just cheering you on. And when you don't have the words, not only is Jesus cheering you on, advocating to the Father for you, but that the Holy Spirit is now inside of you, groaning, steadying you. So at any given moment in your life, there's always two people interceding for you. Like when the marriage is over, the divorce happened. (laughs) Like when your kids are crazy and the relationship is fractured and you don't know if it can ever be fixed. When things are falling apart and you don't even, on two planes, there's always two people praying on your behalf and they pray the will of God. Real quickly, real quickly this morning, have you ever wanted to know what the will of God for you in your life is? I'm gonna tell you this morning. It's real simple, and we tend to muck it up, and we tend to make it really muddy, and it's real simple. Let me tell you what the will of God always is in your life. That the Son gets glorified. <laughs> that the Jesus becomes famous in your life that he gets on display in your life. That's always the will of the Father is to glorify the Son. Should I go to A&M or should I go to UT? I mean, you should go to Baylor, first of all. Come on, look at that. (laughs) Well, where's where's God going to get the most glory? Where is Jesus going to be on display? Should I take that job or should I go get that job? I don't know. Where is Jesus going to be on display the most? Should I go? Should I stay? Should we move? Should we this? Should I do this? 
Where is Jesus going to be on display in your life? That's always the will of the Father. The will of the Father is always to glorify the Son. So often, this is what I do, and I imagine many of us, we say things like this when we're suffering. Lord, just get me out of this. I can't do this anymore. And I wonder if the Lord might be inviting us to say, not one minute longer than for Jesus to be made famous in my life. That is a powerful shift. When you find yourself in those places and you don't know what's up and down, there's two people always on the will, begging the will of the Father on your behalf. And so now we come to Romans 8, 28. Do you feel the teeth now of Romans 8, 28? Do you feel the weightiness of it? Do you feel like the heaviness? It's not just all things work for the good of the glory of God of those who love him. This is in the midst of deep pain and hurt and anguish. So let's go there. It says this, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. First, let me tell you what it's not saying. It is not saying, well, everything happens for a reason. That is not what the scripture is saying. It's, it is saying that God will take everything, that he will not waste one ounce of pain and suffering you experience in this life. He will not waste it, that he can bring good even from the parts of your life that are dark, painful, and hurting. Not that he caused it, not that he willed it, not that he wanted it to happen, but he can even redeem that. He will not waste one ounce of pain in your life. And this is the part that's going to sting. It's not for everybody. Look at what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. For those who love him, if you're a follower of Christ, that means that every ounce of hurt, pain, suffering, regret, heartbreak you've ever experienced, God can even use that and bring about something good in your life. But if you're not a follower of Christ, those things, good or bad, are working against you. They're up to you to figure out. It's like we take them and we put them in our hands. And when they're in our hands, when I take control, man, I make a mess of my life. But when they're in God's hands, he can even redeem that part of your life. Have you ever, uh, it's like if you go to the hospital, is going to the hospital good or bad? Well, it depends. If you go to the third floor oncology department, that's a bad day. If you go to second floor labor and delivery, you come with balloons. It's a celebration. So when you ask yourself, is this a good or is this bad? Well, are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, God can take even the hardest parts of your life and he will not waste them and he can even redeem those. It's like Paul is encouraging us, encouraging us, encouraging us. Listen, if you're in Christ, we have a future inheritance that far outweighs the present suffering that we get to experience. How is it? How is it that in the midst of all the pain, all my circumstances, that God can do anything? Let me be real clear for, with us this morning. You never look towards your circumstances to see if God loves you. You look towards the cross. 
It's the greatest display of love the world has ever known. And when you're in pain and you're hurting and you're suffering, if you look to your circumstances, you will always be disappointed. You look towards the cross. We are a gospel-centered, Christ-centered community. Think about it. If you did not know how the story unfolded, and you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you got to the story of Jesus going to the cross, you would be like, are you kidding me? I've wasted three years of my life following this guy. I mean, I've been with him. I've seen the miracles. I've experienced it. And now he's dead and in the tomb. What am I, how can I make sense of that? And I would say, it's only Friday. (laughs) But Sunday's coming. Because there's pain before the promise. There's groaning before the glory. The cross before a resurrection. Um, I want to show you what this looks like in real life this morning. Because I think we need to, it's hard. I don't want us to talk about it up here. I want it to talk about it in a real personal way. So I found a short little video, and it's only like a minute or so long. And I want to show you this as we wrap it up this morning. Let's go ahead and roll that. Big point scoring opportunity for the Aggies with four of the nine finalists. In lanes four, five, seven, and eight. And Bobby Grant was really stoked the other day when he ran his semifinal and took over the NCAA lead. There is a little Zuzu out in lane number seven. You can see him with the headband. Coach Henry said that with Bobby Grant, they've focused on a lot of flat 400s and running in relays. He's clocked 45-second splits recently over those flat 400s to be very careful with doing too much hurling on that foot. She Tatum of Mississippi State giving Bobby Grant everything he can handle. Infinite Tucker also of AM is there, but now Grant takes the lead over hurdle number nine. It's Grant and Tucker, one, two, AM. They both clear the 10th hurdle without a problem. It's going to be Tucker. Yes, he dives for the tape. He was second last year. He wasn't about to leave it on the track, and he wins it. It's one, two, AM, and even more than that. Infinite Tucker was third ranked in the NCAA entering this weekend. He ran 49.78, improves drastically upon upon that, seeing that he ran 49.38. Look at this battle down the home stretch. Think about what their practices are like. If they're battling like this on race day, you can see that Tucker just finds that extra gear as he clears that final hurdle down this stretch. And then look at this finish, diving. He goes Superman style across the finish line to get the victory. Question for you this morning. As he's turning that, that, that corner, he's coming into that home stretch. What do you think his body was telling him? Quit. This hurts. You don't need to do this. The pain lies to us. The pain says, step back, quit running. You don't have to finish. And what Paul points us to this morning is there is a future inheritance that makes whatever we experience in this world today pale in comparison to the finish line. Man, don't you want that to be a picture of your life where you get to the end of your life and through the pain, through the suffering, through the hurt, through the regret, you run and you Superman and you dive to that finish line. And you know what? 
you experience a future inheritance that far outweighs any pain that we experience in this life. But the truth is, for many of us, I imagine the pain has caused us to back out, to back out of the race, to quit, to stop running, to back out of what God intended for you to live. Are there parts of your marriage where you look at your marriage and it's like, I'm just given that, I, I back out. I just can't run it. I can't, that part of our marriage is too hard. Maybe you have a stuff with your kids where it ain't good. And Thanksgiving this week's going to be really painful. And so you back out. You stop running the thing, you stop running the race that God has called you to. The pain will lie to you. The pain always tells you it's not worth it. Just stop. You don't have to keep going. But there's a future inheritance that far outweighs this momentary suffering that we get to experience. That is the heart of Romans 8:28. For we know that for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Where have you, brothers and sisters? Where have you stopped running? Where has the pain in your life invited you to bow out of the things that God has called you to? Because the truth is, I don't stand up here as somebody that has that figured out. Please don't. I mean, I love to say the closer you get, the less impressed you are going to be with me. Because I'm, I'm right along there with you. There are parts of my life where I've bowed out and I've stopped running. And I see Paul's words and I see pictures like this. And it's like, we know that at any moment on two planes, he's just cheering me on. And he's cheering me on. And the spirit inside of me is groaning on my behalf, inviting me, you take that next step. And that next step, and that next step, and soon again, you're going to be running again. And that is an invitation for all of us this morning.